There are at least a dozen different sermons in the Exodus passage that we just heard this morning, or more. One is the question of what makes us fear people who are the other? Why were the Egyptians afraid of the Hebrews? They had no collective memory of Joseph. They only saw people who were other and who were growing in number. Doesn't say that the Hebrews acted in bad faith or sowed seeds of rebellion, only that they were numerous, outnumbering the Egyptians. So the Egyptian leaders dehumanized them, oppressed them, forced them into slavery. Any parallels in our society? Any comparison with the backlash we now see, especially in some areas where white people of European descent feel threatened because they are already outnumbered by people who aren't white? And there's another whole sermon on active nonviolent resistance and the morality of deceit if it reduces human suffering and saves human lives. The midwives, Shifra and Pua, they were brilliant. Had they obeyed Pharaoh, hundreds of babies would have died. Had they openly resisted Pharaoh's injustice, they would have been killed, replaced by loyal midwives, and hundreds of babies would have died. But by using trickery, an outright deceit. They diverted Pharaoh off of his murderous trail and they saved countless lives and kept countless mothers from suffering a lifetime of grief. When are we called to use whatever power we have to bend the systems of injustice toward justice? And there are more sermons. These three chapters of Exodus are rich in narratives that speak to us today. Read them sometime. Explore the questions that come to you. But now let's jump ahead to chapter 3 to the adult Moses, tending the flocks of his father-in-law in the foreign land of Midian. And I say foreign because it was for both of Moses' families of origin. Midian was neither Hebrew nor Egyptian. Yes, Midianites had uh, descended from Abraham, but they were outside the covenant and often portrayed as enemies of the Hebrews. But here, Moses took a Midianite wife and attempted to start a whole new life and identity, having run from his Hebrew people and from Pharaoh and his adopted Egyptian mother. The only future he could imagine at this point was as a Midianite shepherd. Think about it. Moses had zero acquaintance with or formation in the faith of his ancestors. No knowledge of the God who journeyed with Sarah and Abraham, Isaac and Rebekah, and with the clan of Jacob. 
God's earlier plan to bless all nations of the world through the descendants of Abraham and Sarah had by this time gone completely off the rails. The Hebrew people were not, strictly speaking, even a people. No cohesive social identity, no common history being preserved, no religious or cultural institutions. What did God even have to work with here? They were a race of enslaved and traumatized people. They lived in Egypt, but were not at home there. They had no shared sense of worth or purpose in the world. And as for the God who wanted to use them to bless all nations, they didn't even know that God existed. Hundreds of years had passed since Yahweh's first promise, and God was no closer to fulfilling that promise than when God told Abraham and Sarah they would bear a son in their old age. These Hebrew descendants had forgotten about their God. But God had not forgotten about them. And God was determined to rebuild a relationship from scratch. So God saw the suffering of the people. God saw what they could not see a future where the oppressors lost their power and the oppressed found their freedom. A future where the life-giving covenant with God would find a new life, a new beginning. But here's the thing. God seeing something and being moved to act is just the first in a sequence of things that need to happen in order for God to take action in our time and space. God is all about forming communion with God's people and together God and God's people building shalom in the world. God did not set up the world for God to be a solo actor. Now I'm not suggesting that God doesn't have the power to act alone but in the biblical record, God doesn't seem to do that, ever. At least I can't think of an example. Feel free to prove me wrong. But it seems to me that every act of God portrayed in Scripture is relational. It's either done in active collaboration with human partners or it is done by God in order to establish collaboration with human partners. God's design is to work in partnership with us for the shalom of all creation. So God sees, that's step one. God is moved. God's compassionate heart is activated, step two. But nothing more will happen until God finds human partners, collaborators who will work in concert with God to bring about what God desires. An attentive and compassionate God 
needs attentive and compassionate partners to work with. God asks us, do you see what I see? So where might God likely turn to find a leader for the oppressed and traumatized Hebrew people, a people without an identity and purpose, a people with no knowledge of or relationship with Yahweh? Moses is the perfect and most unlikely choice. He also bears the mark of oppression and trauma forcibly given up by his Hebrew birth mother and family, raised in social isolation in the house of a tyrant who was committing genocide against Moses' people. Now, Moses is exiled in Midian because his own trauma boiled over and resulted in murder of another person. Moses is half Hebrew, half Egyptian, and shunned by both Hebrews and Egyptians. And he wants nothing more than to leave all that behind and start fresh with a new identity and a new people. Moses is God's perfect and unlikely choice of someone to stand up to Pharaoh and lead his people into freedom. Because if God is starting from scratch in terms of rebuilding a people to be in relationship with, God could do no better than to start the rebuilding process with someone like Moses. If someone as wounded and cut off and disinterested as Moses has the capacity to see and notice God's presence, hear God's voice, perceive God's purpose, and grasp what was at stake, then maybe there's at least a chance that God could rebuild a genuine relationship with a wounded and cut off and disinterested people. So in a way, the burning bush in the desert was God testing Moses. God, in essence, was saying, I can see, but Moses, can you see? An attentive God was looking for an attentive partner. Would Moses notice the fire? And would Moses be curiously attentive enough to notice that the bush wasn't being consumed? And would Moses perceive the divine presence in the flames? And would Moses move toward it instead of away from it? Yes, Moses would do all those things. Moses passed the test and engaged God in a conversation that went something like this. Moses, Moses, here I am. I am the God of your ancestor. Go to my suffering people. Who am I to go? It's not who you are. It's who I am. But they won't respect me. I am enough and I will be with you. 
but they won't believe me. I'll demonstrate with a sign. They will see and believe. But I'll fall flat. I don't have what it takes. Who gave you what you have? Oh God, please not me. Send somebody else. Okay, fine. Take your brother. Take this stick. You'll figure it out. That's a whole chapter and a half and about a dozen lines. But it's even more accessible than that. You know, we don't need to think of this burning bush story as a unique, spectacular encounter between God and one of the greatest leaders in the biblical record, never to be repeated again. We could also read this conversation there at the bush as a metaphor for how God and humans usually have to negotiate a working relationship. Maybe you and God have already had exactly that kind of conversation, but you didn't identify it as such. Maybe it will ring a bell if I reframe the conversation this way, and I'll put it in first person, and you can put yourself in the conversation. I might be out in a favorite spot in nature or some other place with enough space and inner quiet that I can be attentive. And I hear God call my name. No, not literally. I just have this sense that I'm known and loved by God in that moment. And I respond with, here I am. Again, not literally, but I open my mind and heart to the divine. And then, partly in that moment, but mostly in the coming days and weeks and months, or years, a struggle ensues between God and me. I never hear words or a voice or see anything spectacular, but God is working in me and on me, I realize, in retrospect. God is bringing to mind a particular place of brokenness that God wants to see restored, healed, made right. It may be in a relationship I have with someone. It might be in the life of a hurting neighbor that I've been trying to avoid. It might be systemic oppression happening in my workplace or community or nation or wider world. And I have a voice that I have not yet raised up against it. And I have power that I have not yet leveraged to confront that injustice together with others. Or maybe it's creation itself groaning under the weight of human injury. And I have choices to make that might help heal that wound. Or maybe it's brokenness within myself that I have not yet mustered the courage to face. 
Whatever the issue at stake in my burning bush, God seems to be pushing me now to go. Join God in healing, restoring, redressing a wrong. But who am I? It's not who you are, it's who I am, and I will go with you. But nobody will notice I'm an outsider. I am enough. I will be with you. Be patient. But they won't believe me. I'll demonstrate. If you can believe, they can believe. But I don't have what it takes. Who gave you what you have? I trust you. Will you trust me? No, not me. Send anybody else. And then I might sense God's disappointment and hurt. But I'm not forced, just allowed to take whatever small step I'm ready to take, even with a crutch. I imagine God saying, Okay, Phil. I trust you even more than you trust me, so take your walking stick with you. You'll figure it out. There is plenty of brokenness to go around in this world. There's the global and intractable, the war in Ukraine, and now the renewed war between Israel and Hamas, the global refugee crisis. And there's the local poverty, lack of housing, essential transportation, basic childcare. And there's the interpersonal, broken family relationships. And there's the internal. God sees. God's heart is moved with compassion. And God is asking, do you see what I see? God is looking for partners who see what God sees to join the work of rebuilding Shalom. And meanwhile, God joins us in our suffering. God weeps with us.